The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series, so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Here we are, bud. We are at the halfway point. Almost halftime, baby! Woo! We are beginning book six, which, may I just say, has probably the wildest subtitle it has <laughs> in two- this entire book. It has technically two subtitles, depending on which source you get it from. The one on the cover itself is Assignment Jerusalem Target Antichrist, but the audiobook has a slightly different one, Assignment Murder Target Antichrist. All right, so that was news to me, for yeah. real, um, because the only thing I'd ever seen was the one on the book that you are holding in your hand that was the Assignment Jerusalem Target Antichrist, which is silly enough on its own, but then I pulled up the audiobook, which even the cover of the audiobook still has that title. And then the guy started reading and was like, assignment, murder. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) So I think we probably know what's going to happen by the end of this one. Spoilers. Yeah. We are reaching the halfway point of the tribulation, but we've still got a little bit of a way to go before we get there. So we're going to knock out part one, part two, and then we'll get to that final moment in part three. So you guys stick around for all of that with us. We're going to make our way to the murder. So what struck you about this first part of the book? Like you actually told me before we went into this that you were kind of digging this one. Yeah, this one is really, really good. We have a lot of action. We have a lot of compelling supernatural stuff. Just like plot is happening like rapid fire. And most of it is pretty compelling uh, we even have a love plot in this section that I kind of actually dig. It's cute, man. Yeah. We're going to get to that love plot. One of the things that I actually kind of appreciated, but I think it's more of a testament to how convoluted these books have gotten, is that we have something happen in our prologue that has never happened before. Okay. We have to introduce our players. Yeah, they just introduce uh, everyone in this little prologue section to kind of give you a rundown of who's going to be in the book because we're, we have so many characters that we need to refresh them for people that are uh, just tuning in. So can you do me a favor? Yeah, what you need? Can you read me the 
headings on each character, or rather, like, what their categories are? Let's see. All right, so we have the believers, the enemies, and the undecided. Yep, we've pretty much drawn our battle lines at this point, if that wasn't clear already. I think the undecided is the smallest group, right? Yeah, it's just Hattie and Heim. Oh, yeah, Hattie and Heim, so. All right, so before we run full tilt into chapter one, there are some goodies in the prologue that I do want to address. A lot of it is kind of that left-behind prologue that we have gotten used to at this point. It's a little bit from Apollyon, so they do some direct pull quotes from Apollyon. They also mention that we are now 38 months into the tribulation. It has been three years and two months. So we got about four months left. And we end the prologue with a pretty foreboding passage from Revelation. So do you mind taking that one real quick? Yeah. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released. Ooh. Now, do you know kind of some of the significance of the Euphrates River? Yeah, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates were supposedly the two rivers that were surrounding the Garden of Eden. Yep, when John of Patmos is writing Revelation, he is writing to an audience of churches that are in, like, modern-day Turkey. But also, many of these churches weren't just converted Gentiles. A lot of them would have been Jewish. Mm -hmm. So he is calling back to imagery from their common understanding of, you know, their faith. So we're calling back to, you know, Garden of Eden stuff. We're calling back to creation stuff. That's why in multiple instances in the Revelation lore, the River Euphrates and the Tigris are mentioned. And they're going to come up and left behind. I've been stalling for long enough. Let's go ahead and open up chapter one with the word. What's the first word of this entire book? Rage. <laughs> no other word described it. Rage. Guys, we say goodbye to sad boy Rayford. Say hello to mad boy Rayford. It's uh, it's Rayford's yummy form. It's just Rayford, but mad. <laughs> <laughs> just an angry 40-year-old white guy. Just, you know, or an average day at a Costco. <laughs> Why is Rayford angry during this first chapter? Because he kind of leaves the safe house. He goes on a little bit of a walk about why is he so pissed off? Well, he just wants to kill Carpathia already. Like Carpathia is just a thorn in his side. And it's just all consuming thoughts that this man needs to die by his hand. Yeah, he actually is praying openly now because he's had the thoughts before but now he's asking to be god's weapon the instrument of death yeah he's even saying like i'll i'll go the middle east wear a disguise be in the right place at the right time the phrase be god's weapon the instrument of death really struck me in this section i have it highlighted yeah it's a pretty big one but we don't actually get to linger on rayford for too long don't worry he's gonna get plenty of time to uh to fume and be angry and do all kinds of other bad stuff later because we cut to kind of a new point of view character. Yeah, we cut to David Hasid. 
So how much did you remember about David before we started this? Uh, not too much. He was, uh... Oh, God, nothing's really jumping out at me. Do you remember when Mac and Ray came back during Soul Harvest? They saw the video of Nikolai talking about the rebuilding, and everybody stood up and clapped. Yeah. There was the one kid in the room who was very unenthusiastic about his clapping. Mm-hmm. That's David. Oh, okay, gotcha. So David works... Originally, they said he works in IT and computers. David has moved up the chain into a more logistics role. He's doing ordering and setup and monitoring. He's not in security, but security for the global community and specifically global community headquarters does not function without him. Yeah. So he's doing really well for himself, but he's an insider for the Tribulation Force, working very closely with Mac. I wrote in my notes here, this is kind of the second anime opening. Mm -hmm. So we're in season two of Left Behind now. We have new characters showing up in the opening, new theme song more characters are going to get the spotlight. Yeah. So we are going to be intercutting, not just between Ray and Buck. We're going to get some Mac stuff, some David stuff, and a few other characters as well as both this book and the next few books go on. Yeah. So kind of a little stage setting for David and Mac. They're still working behind the scenes, not just to feed information. They're also starting to do some sabotage. Yeah, they're doing smuggling of certain supplies out of the global community to give to the tribulation force, providing intel about uh, what's going on with Carpathian Fortunato, a lot of stuff like that. When we cut back to them pretty frequently during this book, that's a lot of what we're going to do is some exposition stuff along with what they've got going on to sabotage the GC. So we're back to Ray again. We learn that like he's not really making it a secret to everybody that he's not doing well and that he is on this kick to kill Carpathia. And in fact, Zion has specifically pulled him aside and said, hey, you, you really need to cool off about this whole assassination thing. He knows that the Carpathia assassin, like as soon as like anyone tries, even if they're successful, they're going to have like public enemy number one on their head for the rest of the tribulation. Yeah, but Ray's not really thinking about that. Yeah. And this stuck out to me because throughout some of this chapter, Ray's talking about how great everything's going. The co-op, the global commodity co-op that everybody is setting up for when the Mark of the Beast comes is headed up by Chloe, and she's doing a great job. Buck has his magazine. Zion, he has his website. But Ray suddenly feels like he is no longer necessary to the cause. That's really important. Yeah. Did that hit you? Yeah, it did. Yeah, because like he's still like an, an integral part of the team, but he doesn't really feel like it. He doesn't have anything that he's really spearheading aside from just this ulcer in his head that I got to kill Carpathia. I got to kill Carpathia. Like I said a little earlier, there's nothing more dangerous than a 40 year old white guy who feels like he should be the main character suddenly not feeling like he's the main character anymore. <laughs> And in a way, like narrative wise, it kind of shifts from like that, too, because it's now like how in the previous books you would have a scene change would happen. If it was a Rayford scene, you'd go into Buck. If it was a Buck scene, you'd go into Rayford. Maybe you'd cut to like some enemies and stuff. But now he is just like another one of this big, expansive team who's getting more uh, airtime. So in a way, that's kind of valid. It's not all about him anymore. <laughs> so do you think that that's a strength? From the uh, book's perspective, like we've talked about, and you guys are going to see how much we intercut in between different teams of characters now. You finish the book. Do you think that that is a positive for at least the narrative side of things? I, I think so, just because it rounds out the perspectives of uh, tribulation that you get. And it just shows more sides of the story, which I personally like. What about you? I think so. It gives, like you said, more of a chance to flesh out and develop these other characters. 
it also allows our action to spread out a little bit more. We don't necessarily just have to have the core Tribulation Force members and what they're up to right now. So it allows Jerry to kind of free up a little bit with the stories that he gets to tell. Now, does he take full advantage of it? No, but I think that it at least lets him stretch his wings just a little. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. So let's kind of zoom in on Ray just a little bit because he's already making justifications for a murder that he hasn't even committed yet. Yeah. He's trying to convince himself that if he were to kill Nikolai, it is a murder of vengeance. It is Mm -hmm. to avenge specifically Bruce, but also Ken now. Yeah. Because any action taken by the GC is seen as an action directly taken by Nikolai. Therefore, Nikolai is the one to bear the blame. And um, now Nikolai did murder Bruce. He had Bruce killed. So I can understand that. But everything else, he's sort of wrapping up in just, it's a ball of excuses, Mm -hmm. really. And he's sort of sitting there thinking about, well, Zion says only a quarter of the population of Earth is going to survive from the beginning of the rapture to the end of this whole thing. I may not be among that quarter, so I better take my action now. Yeah, he starts getting more ambitious because of that looming sort of Damocles over his head. He's like, well, I just might as well just go balls to the wall and do anything necessary to take down the global community. Giving no thought to what consequences his actions might have on people he cares about. Mm-hmm. So exactly. This is a very different Ray. How you feeling about Mad Rayford? It's a character shift that I can see why, because this guy is starting to become a little bit haggard. The stuff that he's had to endure, the stuff like the the traumatic moments that he's undergone through the last few years, I can see where it's starting to break him a little bit and where he just is starting to lose himself. I I, I, I can see what they're doing with this, and I kind of like it. I'm going to say something that's not a spoiler for the end of this episode, but there is a character when Ray tries to make that excuse of everything I've been through, kind of throws it back in his face. Oh, really? And says, look, we've all had bad days here. Okay. You're not special. He doesn't listen. But (laughs) So speaking of all having bad days, Ray's not the only one who's consumed with rage and wants specifically to focus that rage on Nikolai. How's Hattie doing? Hattie is also not doing good. Her condition, uh, as far as medically, is improving. She's starting to become a little bit more active. I think we even got into some of her recovery in the end of Apollyon, but she's still pretty much just as mad as Rayford. Yeah, she's working out all the time, getting her strength back, conditioning, putting herself in a position where she can leave, get to the Middle East, kill Nikolai. Pretty similar plan to Ray. Mm Mm-hmm. So we cut back to David as the chapter ends, and we find out that Mac and Ray have a plan to steal a load of GC computers. Yeah. Now, this is going to kill two birds with one stone, and this is why I like David. He's a very effective saboteur, because not only is he going to steal exactly 144 computers, he is going to steal them from the team that is in charge of monitoring and searching for Buck and Zion on the net. Ah, okay. He's not only getting computers to the 144,000, he is taking computers from the people who could compromise the Tribulation Force. Okay. David is incredibly good at his job, and we get a few scenes of him doing his sort of GC voice. Mm -hmm. If you had to describe a good GC employee, especially in upper management in a few words, what would you describe? Uh, Loyal, clockwork, obedient. I would also say condescending Mm -hmm. and fault-finding. Ah, okay. I see a lot 
in this of some of the caricatures of not only like Nazi Germany, but the USSR Mm -hmm. that somebody like Tim LaHaye would be way deep into. Everything is about not only performing to be the best citizen that you can be and follow all the rules. It's also about trying to take everyone around you down a peg Mm -hmm. and trying to make them look bad. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, pushing people down so you can step on their back to get to the next rung. Right. Okay. Not trying too hard, but trying just hard enough and saying all the right things to put the right people down and build the right people up. And David's really, really good at this. And there's another character we're going to see later who's also very good at this. And that takes us out of chapter one. Pretty quick chapter. Yep. All right, chapter two. So Buck is in the safe house shelter. It's been expanded considerably because of Donnie's plans and Ken's. So before he died, Ken was like, hey, nice shelter you got. I upgraded it for you. (laughs) We also get Zion is regretting not being able to help with a lot of this more manual labor. He's even saying like all he's really doing is soft work in the upstairs bedroom, like, you know, organizing stuff for the tribulation uh, website and getting everyone updated. He's starting to feel a little bit guilty because that's all he's doing when there's all these big expansive projects to upgrade the safe house. Right. He is very quickly shouted down by the other members of the tribulation force. Like, no, you are more valuable over here. You need to do this. Mm hmm. Division of labor, and these guys don't like communism. Yeah, and that, that's something I even commented on, uh, I think, b- between the last episode we recorded and this one. Like, for as much as these guys, like, have harped on communists subtly or directly, like, taking a jab, sure are describing a, uh, a little authoritarian communist state that they're building. Yep, and they have a supreme leader, too. He just lives in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm kind of casting aspersions here, but I really did like this scene because Zion comes down, talks to Ray, Buck, and Floyd, who are all in the basement, you know, digging out the shelter, and they have that nice back and forth, and these guys have really kind of become a family. It's cute. Yeah. I like it, but that kind of makes it a little bit more tragic what happens a little bit later in this section. Mm -hmm. So we find out Floyd is getting tired a little more easily. Yeah, uh, Floyd has not been doing too good for a little bit but he's been hiding it pretty well. But now it's starting to become a bit more visible to the rest of the tribulation force. Nobody really knows why, but he's just not doing well. Mm -hmm. We get a few more tech specs on the shelter. And this is where I just wrote bad tech in my notes. (laughs) We have a few bad tech moments in this section. Oh boy, we do. And I'm going to talk about them. Boy, howdy, am I going to talk about them. I actually had an exchange with a listener who said, it's like they had a computer guy that they called up once and asked him how something worked and then they just sort of went from there (laughs) but they talk about how the shelter has cell receivers satellite and infrared for some reason i'm not sure why it has infrared um i had a computer in the 90s that had an ir receiver on it it's just not really something that you see anymore Mm -hmm. i mean it definitely wouldn't be necessary for communication like really as far as i know like i may be the galaxy brain who sounds very dumb right now but i don't know why ir would be necessary but there's a lot of back and forth in these first couple chapters that's just catch-up material Mm -hmm. so if it sounds like we're blazing through this really quick that's why is because they don't say a lot that hasn't already been said about what everybody's doing what chloe's up to what hattie's up to what ray's up to what buck's up to what zion and floyd and everybody we do get a little bit about little kenny oh 
Uh, you want to read that passage about what little Kenny's doing? Let's see. Kenny slept in their room, and while he was not the type to bother the rest of the household, both Buck and Chloe were often up with him in the night. So, uh, yeah, they're having to deal with the parent thing, the, uh, the baby keeping them up all hours of the night and not really getting uh, getting much sleep to, of themselves. Yeah, just being a standard baby. Yeah. You know, baby stuff, which I think is kind of weird. It almost seems like Kenny was only inserted to, like, increase the drama. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see Kenny used as a drama device right. later on in this book and the next one. I think eventually, once Kenny reaches a few more years old, that his presence is a little bit different, if I remember correctly. But, like, right now, it's just baby stuff. Yeah. So we find out that Zion has basically taken the number two spot on Nikolai's shit list. After the witnesses, of course. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to kind of view them as a unit. So they're number one. Zion is number two. Buck kind of notices this change in Ray. I mean, really, everybody does. But mm-hmm. Buck is particularly bothered by it. Ray is being short with everyone. He's taking these walks. He is less active. He doesn't talk as much. He's very withdrawn. And Buck decides he's going to confront him about it. So we cut back to Mac and David for a second. Uh, We find out that Carpathia has rebuilt a palace for himself in New Babylon. It's not like a nice apartment building, office building. It is like like a full palatial estate now. I think at some point, Leon even calls it a castle and then like quickly corrects himself and be like, "Uh, no, it's it's not a castle. It's the the GC headquarters. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's a castle. Yeah. And we get a name drop of another character, a Corporal Christopher. So there's a new cargo chief for the Condor 216 who reports directly to David. And we're going to meet Corporal Christopher here in a moment. Yeah. So Buck, he comes up to Ray. And I'll tell you the thing that stood out about his little confrontation with Ray. I calls him dad. Yeah, he does. I don't think we've seen that yet uh, before. Not that I remember. We might have glossed over it, mm-hmm. but I thought that was cute. Yeah. You know, he's really reaching out to him. He's like, hey, dad, I know things aren't going well. You're not yourself. What's going on? And Ray just completely closed off. Just yeah. won't. Even snaps at Buck a little bit. Like Buck uh, makes a joke and he's like, oh, yeah, Floyd's all AWOL. He's like, don't say AWOL. That's serious. The whole vibe I'm very uncomfortable with the energy we've created in the safe house today. <laughs> it's not good, guys. He even kind of talks to Floyd like, hey, are you okay? Um, and notices that Floyd is starting to look a little yellow around the eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, And there's a line in here that's very uncomfortable. Oh, no. Yeah, I have it right can here. Can we say this? I, I don't know if we can say this. I, I, I mean. I'm going to let Gavin read it. And it's a quote. Yeah. So it's. And I don't personally consider this word a slur, so go go ahead and read it. All right. Some joke about how honkies always think the brothers look strange. I didn't pursue it. Yeah, that's Buck quoting Floyd. And so that, yeah, that gets said. And it was, it made me just go, ooh, you guys are very white writing this. <laughs> they, they write Floyd saying things like that, like it's the, the characters from Airplane. Mm-hmm. Like, like he's talking jive and it made me very uncomfortable. And I think that's kind of the same thing with T that T is the only one who says bro, which no character in this book says bro other than one of the black characters. Yeah. I don't even know if it's offensive. It's just weird. Just, yeah, just weird writing. Yeah. So back to Mac and David. So they end up pulling a fast one with the 216. They unload it. And then while the guy driving the forklift isn't looking they have another guy move the forklift into a cargo hold with the computers and then like replace it with some other boxes (laughs) it's just 
such it's Keystone Cops. Yeah. <laughs> it's silly. But they've got their computers. That's what counts. Yeah. And then they go to see Corporal Christopher. And Corporal Christopher has an office with the initials C C C C C. So Corporal Christopher Condor Cargo Chief. That's it. <laughs> And David's giving this corporal kind of a hard time. Like, he's asking them to come to his office, like, get in here, condescending and everything. Yep, playing uh, the GC role well. Oh, yeah, playing the GC role extremely well. And the door opens, Corporal Christopher walks in, and rather than being relaxed, Mac, like, snaps up and stands at attention because it's a girl. Yeah, it's uh, Corporal Annie Christopher, which uh, as soon as her name came up, just the Prince song, Annie Christian, was just playing on the loop every time she came <laughs> up. Yeah, it's a great song. Listen to that entire album. It's great. I would drop it in here, but um, we would get copyright strike. Oh, yeah, so. hard. <laughs> Prince's estate is very litigious. Now, can you read the description, please? The very clearly written by a dude description of Annie. Let's see. Um, under her cap showed short cropped hair, uh, cut almost like a man's, but she was trim and comely with large dark eyes, perfect teeth, and flawless skin. And Mac is just like a wooga eyes as soon as she walks in. Now, we got to remember, Mac's a little bit older. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of like Ray. I think he's actually older than Ray. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I think he is. So he's an old army guy. He's an old guy in the 90s, early 2000s. So he's going to be like boomer old. Mm -hmm. So he's got like, oh, you take your hat off when there's a lady present. Like, and I think he's from Texas. Too. Yeah. So they, they really play up the Texas thing in the next couple books. Oh boy. He should have been the cowboy. Yeah. Not Ken. Not the guy from like Chicago or whatever. He should have. Max should have been the cowboy. <laughs> you f***ing up, Jerry. We're at the halfway point of these books, Jerry. <laughs> Step up your game. So Annie introduces herself. Well, she's instantly like a, you know, short-haired, strong woman, don't take no shit, calls Mac out for his chauvinism of daring to stand for a woman, which, like, okay, like, I get it. Like, maybe not. But the book is kind of being like, how ridiculous of this woman to ask to be treated equally to a man. Right? <laughs> yeah, they lampshade a little bit. Back to that little, uh, the trope that they do, where they'll do something a little bit, uh, and then try to cover it up, but then be like, oh. It, they don't try uh, too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think she says little woman in here, doesn't she? Yeah, she says, uh, I know who you are, and your Neanderthal chauvinism is noted. If we're going to work together, you can quit treating me like a little woman. Could have been a Chloe line. Yeah. So all the women are basically written the same, mm -hmm. if they're not old church ladies. Yeah. Rest but, in peace, Loretta. Yeah. You had to remind me, buddy. Yeah. And then she immediately sits on David's lap. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Aw, they're so cute. So these two have apparently been dating in secret for a little while. So yeah. is this the love plot you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, It starts out a little bit uh, suddenly, but I really like it because there's a lot of like, they can't let the GC know because that would, I believe like the term that they use is fraternization. Fraternization. Yeah, it would class for as fraternization and they would have to be moved to different departments. And so they have to keep it, uh, on the download the entire time, and that's just uh, that's not fun for them because they wanna they wanna be in love. Yeah, cute kids. Yeah, and you know what? We talked about this off air, but I think the thing that doesn't suck and will continue to not suck about their love plot, they're already together. Yeah, there's none of this will they won't they. There's none of the courtship part. These are two adults who are together in a working relationship. 
already. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. I wonder if Buck will notice me. <laughs> <laughs> that we get for like seventy-five pages beforehand. I'm gonna take twenty dollars out of my wallet and I'm gonna hand it to you to never do that voice again. <laughs> Bucks and pies. <laughs> so yeah, we get introduced to Annie and uh, keep an eye on her because she's going to be an integral part of the team going forward. Yes. So we back to Zion. Zion states the sixth trumpet judgment is coming. Man, seems like yesterday we finished up the seals and we were into the trumpets. These judgments, they go by so fast. Before we know, we'll be at the bowl judgments. Yeah, we're going to be there soon, and then that's the last seven. And just one day, it's four horsemen, and then it's two million horsemen. They grew up so fast. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get into a little bit more detail in a big way a little bit later. But more importantly, Floyd didn't come to breakfast with Zion. He comes to breakfast with Zion every morning, and he didn't show today. Mm -hmm. And Buck's worried. He goes upstairs and finds that Floyd is still in bed at noon in his clothes. He's breathing. He's not breathing well, sweating profusely, and his eyes are now bloodshot. Yeah, he's, uh, there's no whites left in his eyes, and this guy needs instant medical attention. Yeah, and the last line of the chapter is, I'm in trouble, Buck. We go into chapter three. It would be very unlike Jerry to immediately follow up on a beat like that. So we have to cut away. Yeah. So Mac is headed to Africa to pick up Wangadi Nagumo with Leon to kind of do a bunch of stuff uh, regarding international politics. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of like the Ten Kings plot, I'm reading this and it's just like, I have no idea what's going on for a lot of it. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. We don't get the payoff entirely in this section, but... Since it's not very well explained and sort of happens off screen in a lot of cases. And in much of this plot, our main characters aren't even involved. They just kind of get told later what happens, Mm -hmm. which is very frustrating. The reason this meeting with Ngumo is important is because Ngumo is a central figure in the first book. You remember him? Uh, Yes, I do. So Secretary General of the UN, when the first Left Behind book starts, he's the guy that was the UN rep from Botswana, who was the Secretary General, who stepped down to make way for Nikolai. Yes. So we're bringing him back from six books ago. He stepped down to make way for Nikolai, and the assumed promise was that he was going to end up as one of the 10 ambassador kings specifically over the African states, he did not. There is another ambassador slash king that got that job. We're going to find out a little later why Nikolai set it up this way, why Leon is the one meeting him, but this trip to, and I think they end up going to Johannesburg, Mm -hmm. this trip to Johannesburg to meet with Ngumo and with Rehoboth, who is the actual ambassador king, is important to kick off a lot of stuff involving Nikolai and Peter Matthews and Enigma Babylon Again, it's all stuff that kind of happens almost in another book. Yeah. (laughs) It happens in this book, but it might as well be happening in another book, and our characters are getting told about it. I'll try to keep you guys up to speed on what's going on, because I had to read these a few times to sort of absorb all this conspiracy plot, but this is sort of the beginning seeds of that. That is one of the things that I will say about this book that I didn't like is how convoluted some of this 
political stuff is. For some of these sections, I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. It's a lot of names, it's a lot of locations, it's a lot of events, but like I said, I'm gonna try to keep you guys up to speed. Since Annie has now been confirmed to be a believer, they've checked her mark, David and Mac kind of give her the grand tour of their little operation. They show her in the 216, the reverse listening device. She's like, wow, didn't know this was here. And Mac's like, I don't either, wink. <laughs> We kind of find out Mac is wheeling and dealing as well. He's throwing his power around just like David. And in fact, he has done so to get his former first officer reassigned. And he got him reassigned because that first officer was selling out believers. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 don't worry. I got a good replacement. And his replacement that's coming in is a character that we met before. It's going to be Abdullah Smith, yep. the Jordanian fighter pilot. He kind of fills in a really good, almost like a, a substitute Rayford for Mac. He hasn't really had a friend in the pilot's chair for a while, and this is just going to give him a little bit more kinship and help him endure some of the upcoming stuff. I'm glad you said it that way, because didn't Ray also fly fighters? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, he Abdullah very much is kind of taking on a substitute Ray role. And we sort of end this passage with learning that Leon and Nikolai are trying to set up Peter II with basically enough rope to hang himself. Yeah. They're trying to edge him out because they're tired of Enigma Babylon. They're tired of the power struggle. So they are going to start making moves, making big money moves to get Peter II out of power. Yeah. All right, so back to Buck and Floyd. So Buck's driving Floyd to the hospital in Palatine, the one where Leah works. We find out that he has contracted poison from Hattie. So the poison that killed Hattie the same kind of poison that killed Bruce. We don't know how it happened. Might have happened during delivery. Might have happened while he was caring for her. He has contracted that sort of poisoning as well. I'm not sure on the medical science behind this. And there's a couple of other lines that they put in there that I'm like, ah, I don't know about that, guys. But, you know, for the sake of plot, it really seems like they want to go ahead and get Floyd off the board. Yep. We're going to kind of get our way through this scene. Floyd says it already on their way there that he is pretty much doomed. He said he should have really begun to contact the CDC about this stuff way before, like when his vision started going, but now it's it's just too late. Like he's doomed. Dude, I'm so frustrated because I liked Floyd mm -hmm. and he's been ignoring symptoms for six months for no reason. Yeah. No reason. With enough time, they they have the medical care needed to get help. So, yeah, that, that is kind of weird that he was just hiding symptoms. If he had just said something like, listen, if I were to go to the hospital, that would expose you guys. The GC are looking for you, and they're looking for me. I could have been compromised. If he had said anything like that, I would have been like, oh, okay, I understand. It's unfortunate, but I understand. They don't even try to lampshade it. And we know how much these guys like to wallpaper over their little plot holes here and there. And this is more than a plot hole. It is a frustrating downgrade of a character that we've already seen as hyper competent and a good member of the force just for the sake of, I don't know, drama. Like, I got more to say about this in a minute. Let's let's hop back to Mac, David and Annie. Mm hmm. So they kind of all have the same conversation that most of the GC believers have. Look, we got to lay low we gotta not be noticed we gotta play it cool and we get a little bit of annie's backstory do you have any of that highlighted she was from canada she was flying here from montreal when the earthquake hit she lost her entire family they pretty much only went to church during like funerals and weddings 
And they, they even put in here, they didn't care enough to be atheists, but that's what they practice. We wouldn't have called ourselves agnostics, sounded more tolerant, less dogmatic. We were tight, good people, uh, better than most religious people that they knew. But that didn't matter uh, because, you know, rapture. That's really weird, man. I Yeah, they, the whole we called ourselves agnostic because it was less dogmatic than atheist is such a Christian line mm -hmm. about atheism. Um, you ever heard Kurt Cameron refer to himself as a dogmatic atheist prior to coming to Christ? No. Yeah, straight up. <laughs> he said it in interviews. For those of you who are too young for shows like Growing Pains and don't know star of small screen, Kirk Cameron, he was a TV actor, he's on a sitcom, uh, pretty well known in like the 80s, became a Christian and has basically done Christian media stuff since. He is the guy who plays Buck Williams in the original theatrical release of a Left Behind movie. Makes no bones about being a Christian in Hollywood conservative um you know another fun fact about the left behind movie yeah his wife plays hattie oh my gosh yep <laughs> do wait so because like there's that bit where he only will kiss his wife on stage so is there a scene where they have to like put hattie in another wig essentially yeah i don't think so i don't think any of that happens because it's just the first book okay gotcha so they don't uh they don't get to that point okay i think they do tribulation force and they do a third movie called world at war that yeah. just goes completely off the rails you got me the dvd box set so yeah we're gonna we're gonna binge this we'll have to probably have some we're gonna need some uh we're gonna need some <laughs> emotional assistance yeah we'll probably need some emotional assistance uh for those movies but yeah kurt cameron used to call himself a devout atheist which like me thinks the lady doth protest too much <laughs> All right, buddy. Sure, you were a devout atheist. He was like, a moderator on R uh, slash atheism. Yeah, he's like, he had a. He opens his closet and it's just full of fedoras and katanas. <laughs> I'm saying that as an atheist. Look, that's a self-report, boys. So we get a little bit of foreshadowing for some stuff that's going to happen later. We learn that the bodies after the earthquake were mass cremated. That is kind of given a little peek into how the GC is handling all this death. Cause that's a lot of bodies, dude. Yeah. With big swaths of the population getting killed. That's, that's what we find out. And that also uh, affected Annie a little bit too, because everyone was cremated. She didn't really get a, like a, a feeling of finality with a lot of the deaths that she experienced. Yeah. The closure. Yeah. That really sent her down into a spiral during her backstory. There's another little joke in here that unless you're like a Bible person, you're not going to get, but so Annie found God through Ben Judah's website, like a lot of other people. And David picked her out by her mark. Annie didn't even know she had a mark. She hadn't gotten to that point in the reading. So he brings her into his office and was like, you're a believer. And she's like, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, you are. And she's like, no. And <laughs> can you read what David said to her? Okay, yeah. He said, don't deny it. I can see it on your face. He had to be fishing, so I denied it again. He said, you deny Jesus one more time. You're just going to be like Peter. Watch out for a rooster. I like that because I actually played Peter one time, so I know that, that, that joke really well. Yeah, that's a bit of a deep cut. That's like a, like a B-side <laughs> Bible story. It's a B-side New Testament story. Mm -hmm. After Jesus was crucified, or at least after he was arrested, some people were pointing out Peter, and they're like, hey, you're one of his disciples. He's like, no, I'm not, because he didn't want to go to jail. Yeah, I don't know the dude. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know him. He did it three times because Jesus had prophesied before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Yep. And as soon as he did it the third time, we get a rooster, and Peter was like, what have I done? <laughs> 
Ooh, you, can grow, you can go and go to Sunday school. You may not have heard that one. And also right here, uh, they have a slight, I'm not sure if this is intentional, but it might just be because I've read Fahrenheit 451 recently. One of Annie's first big things that she does as a believer is she memorizes an entire Ben Judah thing uh, before it was destroyed. And that was like a central thing of Fahrenheit 451 where like a lot of believers would memorize like the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, that just reminded me of that. Yeah, there's a couple of dystopian moments in this and there's one that I called out a little later. That was the thing when I was in middle school. Um, there was a curriculum that we were doing in our youth group of like this challenge that you would do to like get closer to God and one of them was to memorize an entire biblical passage from one of the gospels. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, they had that kind of club at uh, my church too, where you were trying to like, or you got points based on how many Bible verses that you memorized. And if you like memorized a lot of them, you got like special rewards. One of these days, I'm going to have an excuse to talk about Bible quiz. Oh. I'm just going to leave it there. It's an Assemblies of God thing. I think it might be in some other denominations, but one day, maybe on an off the record or something, I'll talk about it. It's wild. It's kind of why I know like all the scripture that I do that I can just you know, quote offhand. There's a passage in here that if you have it highlighted, I would like you to read. So okay. this is actually what Annie found on Zion's website that she felt like was directed to her. Dear troubled friend, you may be mourning the loss of a loved one who either disappeared in the rapture or has been killed in the ensuing chaos. I pray God's peace and comfort for you. I know what it is to lose my immediate family in a most unspeakable manner, but let me tell you this with great confidence. If your loved ones were alive today, they would urge you to be absolutely certain you're ready to die. There's only one way to do that. So Annie kind of felt like that was written directly to her, and that was about the point where she converted. Yeah. So we close out the chapter on a quick scene, but a lot happens. So I, I want to kind of go through this scene of what happens at the hospital. So they get to Young Memorial in Palatine where Leah works. Leah, the same nurse who helped with Hattie's miscarriage. She's the one who protected Buck with Ken. She's the one who helped out with Chloe earlier. She's, she's been all through the book. They decide to kind of upgrade her to central character as well. She meets Buck and Floyd at the front desk in the hospital. She sneaks them in. She's kind of telling them, like, you guys can't be here. Like, you are really pushing it. They're looking for Floyd. They're looking for you. They are suspicious of me. Just come on. She knows that Floyd is dying. They get to the back room. She starts talking about anti-venom. Mm -hmm. This is another medical thing that I may sound like a galaxy brain who doesn't know what he's talking about. Pretty sure anti-venom is only for venom which is a biological thing created by an animal. And anti-venom has to be specific to the type of venom that you're injected with. It says actually anti-venin. Does that like, is that uh, different than anti-venom? No, that's the same thing. Yeah, okay. Okay, technically it says the definition is antibodies against specific poisons, uh, especially those in venom of snakes, spiders, and scorpions. They refer to this poison as a non-specific sort of time-released cyanide, which also I don't think that's how cyanide transmits or works uh, whatever like it's poison yeah it's magic poison and again i may be wrong about this this may totally exist this may be something on an episode of house that i missed but it, it just seems really flimsy like i said earlier he's been ignoring his symptoms for months he is basically at death's door yeah they're being really honest about the fact that he's not going to make it and he knows he's not going to make it gc's on the phone the receptionist accidentally gives her away by saying that they're treating a doctor here. 
So and, the GC is immediately on their way. Yeah, and uh, the GC from Wisconsin actually called the place, and that and Wisconsin is where Floyd used to work. So they're automatically like, okay, yep, yep. you know it. GC from Kenosha is on their way. They have to get Floyd. They have to leave the hospital as fast as possible. And I just wrote my notes. How many times has Buck escaped from a hospital now? Uh, let's see. It's been like. I think twice already. Oh man, I think I think it's more than that. Really? He had to escape with Ken. He had to escape with Chloe. He had to escape with Hattie. And now we're at this one. Yep, so fourth hospital. And so they're running out. We find out Leah has stolen a bunch of meds and a gurney and loads it into the back of the Range Rover. And Buck immediately pipes up like, why are you stealing? <laughs> you can't steal these things. And Leah's like, do you want to debate ethics or do you want to fight the GC? Let's go. Buck, half of uh, the tribulation for like how you get your equipment is just stealing at this point. You've stolen. You've embezzled. You've killed a man. Why are you quibbling now? <laughs> Leah, who is instantly kind of a badass, says, uh, look, this is war. All's fair. There's that war rhetoric again. Yep, we're back at that. So she kind of forcefully invites herself to the safe house. She's like, look, everything I have done for you guys, I can't go home now, and you're not going to leave me on the street corner, so you're going to take me with you. And as they're driving away, Floyd begins to beg for morphine because he is in excruciating pain, and that takes us out of chapter three. Yep. All right. So chapter four, so David and Annie telling Mac about their relationship. We talked about this a little bit earlier that the love plot really doesn't suck. Yeah. We find out one of the most useful things about David is that he has reversed all of the bugging devices in the palace. So now he can listen on everybody's office, including Nikolai and Leon. Yes. So uh, now the kind of device that they have on the condor, they have everywhere. So they have ears all over the place. Exactly. And so I just wrote right here, because I did some math, the tech is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Audio recorded onto a miniature disc embedded in the CPU that runs the computers in all new Babylon. Okay, guys, it's not what a CPU does is for you don't embed a disc onto a cpu you can have a cpu and a disc it's not it's not how that works and it only really gets worse from here what do they call the computer that runs new babylon they call it the beast because it has so much information about every living soul but they're like oh but we know the beast is no machine that was the one part of this techno babble part that i actually liked the rest i was just like okay you're just saying words at this point that i like how they pretty much just have like a central computer with everyone's information on it that's neat yeah, but it would be physically impossible to have one computer that did all that. There's just mm -hmm. not enough processing power. Yeah. You would have to have like a server or like a like a bunch of servers. I'm sorry, like I'm getting real nerdy about this, but like that's not, you know what? I'll just shut up. Like I'm literally putting tape around the bridge of my glasses right now. <laughs> It's such a tropey thing, man. Just like the central supercomputer with information on everybody. And uh, right. that's not even like the, the part that got me the most because they're like, but David, what if someone like finds out that you're doing this and they get inside and they're like, well, actually, it has like 15 digits worth of encryption and it would take like. Yeah. Can you just read a skosh of that techno babble about his encryption, please? Yeah. 
say someone catches it onto me and starts looking for my bugs. They, they find them and they trace them to the CPU, to the whole thing apart, and they find the disk. It is so heavily encrypted that they try to random number combinations at the rate of 10,000 digits a second around the clock for a thousand years. They would have uh, barely begun. You, you know, even a 15-digit number has trillions of combinations, but theoretically, it could be deciphered. How would you like to try and match an encrypted number containing 300 million digits? And then they go on for, like, another paragraph or two, just of, like, how secure this thing is and, like, how he's... He's just accounted for everything. They had one computer guy, and they talked to him once. <laughs> we move on from a lot of the bad Technobabble stuff, and we find out Nikolai's putting a lot of faith in David. David is using that faith that Nikolai has put in him to put all kinds of backdoors in the system and sabotage and everything, but he's still playing his role well. They go back to the devil as the prince and power of the air thing. Yeah. Can we take a sec? I've heard like something about that before, but I'm not sure where. So it's it's from Ephesians. Can you pull that in your your footnotesy Bible? It's Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the prince of the air refers to Satan as he dominates his human subjects, here called the sons of disobedience, a Hebrew-inspired phrase like sons of this world in contrast to the sons of light from Luke 16.8. They belong to the family of those who rebel against the holy and the true God. That tells me less than I thought. Man, I really wish I could get, like, some comparative translations or something on that. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like, that, it's just such a weird thing, and it's only in that one part of the Bible. But they extrapolate on it to give David and Max some anxiety that Satan might be in the Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, he's the prince of the air, and this internet goes through the air, so... Satan's in the 5G! Is that the 5G?! <laughs> Guys, I gotta take a minute. <laughs> ah! It's a 5G! Kevin, did we get the mark of the beast? I think we did. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm just sitting here and like that one little passage, even though it's thrown off and never mentioned again, I checked. I'm just having a moment because there are people that probably actually believe this. <laughs> it says right in Ephesians that the 5G is going to get us. Man, sometimes stuff in these books are a joke until they're very much not a joke. Moving on. I don't like this anymore. Hang on. Okay, so Leah and Buck make it back to the safe house with Floyd, who tragically has passed away. Yeah, just middle through the drive, he just uneventfully dies. Buck, like, has a moment, because Leah kind of just like, hey, I'm sorry, and doesn't really react too strongly, and Buck just goes off. He's like, do you know who this guy is? He has, like, been here for the Tribulation Force for a while. He he risked his life to, to tell the Tribulation Force where the GC took Chloe. He came there himself to help her escape, stayed up for days with Hattie, saved her life, helped with the baby deliveries that the Tribulation Force had to do everything. He was never too big to pitch in with the hard work. So this guy, like, integral part of the team, and now is just iced. Okay, I'm going to point something out, and it's frustrating to me. As soon as they start building up a character 
to be useful, they seem to immediately turn around and put them in the fridge. Yeah. I don't like it. It bothers me. This death of Floyd feels incredibly arbitrary, except if we look at it as a motivation to what happens next with Ray. Yeah. Everybody comes together, but kind of tells them what happened. Ray is silent. And I just wrote in my notes, his leadership is slipping. Yeah. He's not stepping up. He's not being the Captain America that he has been previously. He's not bringing everybody together. He's snapping at everybody. Can you read his outburst? Yeah. Daddy, Chloe said softly, what? Rayford said flatly, turning her eyes on her. We're just wondering, what? What, what? You're wondering what we're supposed to do now? Well, uh, so am I. How much can we take? How much are we supposed to take? And then he picks up his chair and just slams it on the ground so hard that it bounced, kicks a wall. He kicks the chair against the wall again. It just flies back. Patty screams. Yeah. He just has a huge outburst in the middle of everybody. He is no longer in control of the situation. Yeah. Ray announces that Floyd was murdered and that he must be avenged. Yeah. So he counts. And even the rest of the force is like, hey, man, no, he wasn't. This was kind of collateral damage. And Ray essentially says, yes, he was murdered. He has to have been murdered. Mm -hmm. Like Ray is sitting there trying to justify it to himself. So he freaks out. They bury the body. Ray takes another opportunity again at the funeral to freak out, specifically on Hattie. Like he goes off and he's like, listen, Floyd loved you, like loved you, loved you. Hattie can't take it. Yeah. He gets in her face and screams at her. And he says again, this is a death that must be avenged. And Zion's like, hang on. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Ray just snaps back. Well, then he better include me as part of it. And Zion's like, careful what you wish for, buddy. And then Ray just breaks down wailing like an inhuman wail. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we've heard this before. It's the one that he let out when he found out Amanda was dead. Like, our guys hurt. Yeah. He tears away from even Chloe. His own daughter tries to hug him and he wrenches away and runs upstairs. We find out that Ray is feeling that his anger is righteous. And that's always a dangerous place to be as a character. Now, yeah. let's take a minute and give the book a little credit. Do you feel like this is being portrayed as a positive thing? Uh, no, I don't think it is in this section because like everyone's kind of like, Ray, you're overreacting. You need to calm down. And he's acting in a very not nice way yeah, exactly. about it. He's yeah. acting erratic. Yeah. So he goes upstairs and he's back to convincing himself, hey, I might as well go out guns blazing if I'm going to go out at all. He even acknowledges that he might be suffering from clinical depression. Mm -hmm. That is not something that I expected. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why. Why? In a lot of cases in evangelical circles, mental health is not taken seriously as a clinical issue. Yeah. Especially Especially with men. Yeah, I, uh, I've experienced that a little bit. Yep. It's not that you're depressed. It's not that you have bipolar. It's not that you have ADHD. It's not that you have list any neuroatypical or neurodivergent condition. Oh, no, no, no. You don't have that. You just don't have the peace of God in your life. Yeah. Now, I'm not painting with too broad a brush. Clearly, there are Christians that do believe that this stuff is real mm -hmm. and deserves medical treatment because the very next thing that Ray thinks about is, I should probably talk to Leah. She's a professional. Yeah. And he says to himself, I'm a sick man. That was surprising. And that's one of those things that I'm just like, all right, weird. There was a time way before now that this was kind of accepted, like almost like we've regressed a little bit, especially in a lot of these evangelical communities. Yeah. You know, like there was an arm of this where while not all of their beliefs 
were positive or progressive, this stuff was there. Yeah. And like, we're still fighting that battle now, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I just wrote Ray is sad in game Thor because he sits there <laughs> worrying if he's still worthy. He actually <laughs> says that he's like, I wonder if I'm still worthy. Close out the chapter with our first Mac inner monologue because he's ascended to main character status now. Mac just knows he's going to be exposed soon and he's accepting and he's like, all right, I got to plan my next moves because Mac's a pretty shrewd guy. He's a survivor and he says, man, it's just a question of how long. So as we end this chapter, I want to point something out that it's another Alex moment. She was listening to me, listen to this while I was working out actually. And she goes, hey, can we stop for a second? What's with all the Tom Clancy stuff? What's the point? And I want to ask you, besides plot, like in the context of the book, what do you think the point of all the... GC sabotage, sneaking around, all of that. What do you think the point of the quote Tom Clancy stuff is? Hmm. I would say the point of all of that is to one kind of some of our characters that have just gotten introduced or more in the forefront, uh, give them more action, uh, give them scenes to shine and, and develop their characters while also contributing to the plot. So I think it's more like it's a stage for some of these newer characters. Let me let me rephrase the question. Okay. In the context of the book. Okay. So for the characters, for Ray, Buck, Zion, Chloe, all of them, why are they doing all this? They know they win in the end. Why go through all this? Uh, well, I, I guess it's to be like, well, God doesn't just do these things. They He needs to, like, work through the characters. So, like, they're kind of exercising God's will in a, in a way, I guess. Yes, and I would take it a step further. I actually told her, the longer you can stay alive and the more that you can get the message out as the net begins to close around you, the more people you stand to reach. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. The goal is to bring as many people to Christ as possible in these seven years. So the Tom Clancy stuff is to keep the signal going. Okay. Is to put them and people like Zion in the most advantageous position possible to reach people. Gotcha. Okay. So that's really the goal. So yeah, keeping the beacons lit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Jumping into chapter five. Out of a version of Mad Boy Ray and into what I'm going to call self-pity Ray. Okay, yeah, yeah. We've had self-pity Ray before, but this is big, bad, toxic self-pity Ray. Because he sees them praying for him <laughs> and likens it to spiritually talking behind his back. And like he knows he's alienating everybody, but he's even in his inner monologue being like, they're talking to God without me, about me. You know what I could do right now? I could just sort of join this little prayer circle and they would have to take me in and they'd have to accept me and they'd have to like hug necks and get along and hold hands and then we could let this whole thing blow over, which was incredibly manipulative and toxic. Yeah. Like he pushes that thought away. He actually recognizes that it is manipulative, but I was like, whoa, dude. Yeah. This ain't you, bro. <laughs> And he uh, he eventually does join the prayer circle. They come to him. Oh, they come to him. Yeah, yeah, they eventually come to him in the prayer circle. And as soon as he's in there, he just breaks down, bawling, because like he has just all of this pent up emotions and feelings, and it all comes out when they uh, when they approach him. Yeah, and we kind of think that it's blown over for now because there's a cute little line where Ray says, "Well, I thought I was going to get kicked out," and Zion kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, "We wouldn't even accept your resignation." <laughs> And we think everything's fine until it's almost immediately not. Yeah. Leah is basically like, well, I'm going to live here, so you might as well give me a tour. So she starts walking her around, avoiding the shelter. And then Leah lets on a few details mm -hmm. 
about like, well, where does Ken sleep? They're like, we didn't mention Ken lived here. And Ray goes immediately back to paranoid. He's like, how did you know that? Who told you? And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then she asks about the shelter. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, how do you know about that? And so Rayford blows up on Leah. And Leah, and Leah blows up right back on him. Yeah, like, and rightfully so. But all of the details that she knows, she figured out through context clues. Like, okay, Dr. Floyd was uh, assisting Hattie, so Hattie has to be here. There aren't enough beds, so where does Hattie sleep? Mm -hmm. So she put everything together. Leah's incredibly intelligent, so she just put this stuff together. She's not a spy. Like, spoilers, guys, Leah's not a spy. Mm -hmm. But the very fact that Ray even broached that subject was offensive to her, and she pops off at him. He tries to cool it down and then immediately sabotages himself by saying, you know, you can be really obnoxious. <sighs> and I'm totally behind Leah when she goes, yeah, you wouldn't tell a man that. <laughs> Yeah. You would have called that being assertive and standing in his convictions. You wouldn't have called it obnoxious. Mm -hmm. All of this is a little bit thrown to the side right after it blows up because Hattie's gone. Hattie! Hattie! Bolted again. Took her stuff with her. Everybody takes off in their vehicles looking for her because she didn't steal a car this time. Yeah. And then Ray immediately thinks, last time she ran to the airport, I'm going to call T. So he wakes T up in the middle of the night. And he's like, hey, um, are Ernie and Bo still kind of skulking around the airport? And he's like, uh, Ernie, I haven't heard from. Bo, uh, yeah, every once in a while. Why? They start having a conversation about the possibility that Hattie may have left. T's going to check the flight logs. But during this conversation, another line that stuck with me since middle school, so it can't be good. Oh, no. Can you, can you just read it? it? And look, I know this is being played to be like, just like a, like a quip, but it just doesn't ring right so can you go ahead and read it yeah t goes i'm not allowed to say we're, we're brothers remember and then ray goes speaking of that you're the only brother brother i've got left if you catch my meaning and then even t goes what <laughs> oh my god dude it's awful yeah. like it's a weird kind of racist <laughs> yeah like it's absolutely i don't think meant to be offensive but it's really just like oh god man you could have said anything else you didn't have to say it that way Ugh. so we end this section with t finds a jet did leave Pawaukee, mm -hmm. approved by Bo, undeclared cargo one passenger ah so hattie's in the wind yep hattie is gone and they're not too sure where she's gone to and with that she may compromise everything they've worked for yep so paranoia up to a 10 stakes are up so we find immediately that there has been some resolution to this hattie moment because on the other side of the world max in the middle of his pre-flight check to pick up president and gumo we find out adola has been approved as max first officer so he's joining the crew they point out that the gc is becoming more and more paramilitary you said the word fraternization earlier yeah the GC is becoming more and more like a military apparatus as time goes on. So that fraternization thing becomes even more relevant. And David calls Mac in and kind of catches him up on what's happening in Chicago. And there's a little bit of Hattie bashing here because he says, look, I understand she was ditzy, but this? <laughs> and we end the chapter with more about the tensions between Peter and Carpathia and that in the 42nd month, Carpathia has to be killed. Mm -hmm. Prophecy states he will die. We're into chapter six. Yep. 
before we get to David, we get a real quick Buck moment that we're finding out Buck's barely hanging in there too. Yeah. Like, I forgot to mention during the little tiff between Leah and Ray, that's the character that calls out Ray, where he's like, look, I've had a bad day. She's like, we all have had a bad day. That's mm-hmm. not an excuse. Buck is also suffering, but he's not losing his shit like Ray is. Yeah, and arguably, like, Buck is having to deal with, like, a little bit more strenuous conditions because he's got this baby to take care of. So, like, he's running on very little sleep. Yeah, one of Ray's kids is in heaven, and the other one is grown. Yeah. (laughs) Ray's pity party really isn't flying with everybody. So back to David. David kind of takes notice that the grounds are filled with like Nikolai cosplayers, all of the GC middle management, they try to dress like him and walk like him and talk like him. It is another caricature of this kind of government apparatus where everyone is trying to be like the dear leader. Mm -hmm. So Leon kind of chastises David because the computers aren't in yet. David gives him a good excuse. Leon accepts it. So they get ready to drop those computers off to the saints, the ones that they've stolen. Yep. Buck and Zion have a little conversation about the sixth trumpet judgment. And we're back to discussing kind of the literal versus figurative interpretation of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Can you read what Zion says there? Uh, yeah. Buck rinsed out his glass. You're wrestling with something yesterday. I still am, Zion said. For centuries, scholars believed prophetic literature was figurative, open to endless interpretation. That could not have been what God has intended. Why would he make it so difficult? I believe when the scriptures say the writer saw something in a vision, it is symbolic of something else. But when the writer simply says that certain things happen, I take those literally. So far, I have been proven right. So yeah, this is something that we've kind of talked about multiple times, you and I, Mm -hmm. about the figurative versus literal. In some of the later books, Zion goes into a little more detail on this, and he says, when they say phrases like, like, or like unto, Zion's cool with taking that as figurative, but when it just says, I saw horses armed for war, they just go, oh, okay, then it's literally going to be horses. Mm -hmm. This is another thing where Zion was totally fine being figurative with like the four horsemen of the apocalypse and other things toward the beginning of the book, and less so now. Tim's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth here. It's like, oh, no, 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 if it says he saw it, then it's literal. That's not consistent with what you did in the earlier books. So I'm like, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to the 200 million horsemen. So they're supposed to slay one-third of the population of the Earth. Now, that's one-third of who's left, considering that we've already lost a ton. Uh, we should make a chart one day about the population cut down yeah. with each judgment. Or if somebody wants to make that, feel free to post it. We'll thank you for <laughs> it. And then we read from Revelation Chapter 9, love chapter 9, verses 15 through 21. So you got those? Yep. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they are wound. The rest of mankind 
who were not killed by these plagues did not repent the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immortality or their thefts all right zion is saying that's going to happen literally that we're going to have an army of 200 million horsemen that are going to trample over everybody and kill them with fire and smoke and their weird snake tails yep we'll see after that, Leah joins her first Tribulation Force meeting, and they're going to decide if she gets to stay. Leah has a very heartfelt story, but at this point, I've heard so many testimonies here that I just wrote generic center template.jpg. Yep, you have the classic formula of, oh, before God, I, like, used drugs, had a lot of sex, did, like, every sin in the book, rapture happened, and then I fully converted, that sort of thing. Well... The only thing that makes Leah's a little bit different is that she did try to commit suicide. Yeah. Her husband succeeded. She did not. And that she took as a sign from God that he wanted her to live. It's very tragic, but she's a fictional character at this point. Honestly, it feels kind of lazy because mm -hmm. they did sort of the generic like, oh, I did every drug. It's just real bad. Uh, the interesting bit, though, her kids were named Peter and Paul, which I thought was kind of neat. Little, yeah. uh, little illusion there. Mm -hmm. And they decide to vote to allow her to stay. Mm -hmm. So back to David and Annie. They are discussing revealing their relationship and deciding, like, it would be a lot easier if we could just date openly. And then the TV turns on. Mm -hmm. I wrote this as a 1984 moment. The okay. TV comes on automatically with <laughs> an address that the GC needs its employees to know. A Quantum 0708 is losing altitude, which was the plane that he had communicated to the Tribulation Force that was the one that left Paul Walkie. And then they get on the a screen a, a caption scrawl that said attention gc palace personnel probable victims in this crash according to the rescue authorities are as follows pilot samuel hansen of baton rouge louisiana united states of north america and hattie durham originally of des plains illinois usna miss durham once served his excellency the potentate as personal assistant condolences to those who knew her and even matt goes fake sounds fake but all right it's fake and says all right well that's totally fake so hattie must be in europe somewhere mm -hmm. so now we got an idea of where she might be because the jet apparently went down somewhere near portugal and as we close out the chapter i think we got two more chapters today yep ray and chloe meet with t they discuss the co-op and they do find out that the pilot who took off from powaki that day was indeed samuel hansen who shares a last name with Bo. Beauregard Hansen. Blue Regard Q Kazoo Hansen. <laughs> All right. So, chapter seven Mac uh, is meeting with Abdullah. They talk about Abdullah's testimony about his Christian wife and how they separated before the rapture. Now, they don't go into what religion Abdullah was. Based on the demographic makeup of Jordan, I'm going to say he's a Muslim. Yeah, uh, I'd say that's it's fair. a pretty fair guess. But his wife became a Christian. They separated. She never stopped praying for him, and he eventually came to faith after the rapture. Mm -hmm. They do say he had a Middle Eastern look with a fondness for a turban and a blouse. Oh, okay. I don't think they call those blouses, guys. Yeah. I think there's probably a specific name for them. I think Sarong? Sarong? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Um, they say 
nobody looks like a Christian is not a quote, but they pointed out that you couldn't tell who a Christian was anymore because they weren't basically saying because they weren't white. Oh my God. It, that's what they say. Yeah. But it's, again, this kind of misguided attempt at inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. We're going to see even more of that as the book goes on. Yeah. The starring cast becomes progressively less white as the books continue. Yeah. But then immediately they say something kind of cool and then they swing right back in the other thing where Annie looks at Abdullah and says, your mark looks better with your coloring than it does on us. And he, he doesn't even really understand. He's like, I, I, I see. Uh, uh okay. Um, so the plan is they're going to go meet with Ngumo, Leon and toe David and Mac have a fake fuel stop in Kuwait plant. So mm-hmm. they're going to drop off the computers in Kuwait, wash their hands of it. Computers get to where they need to go. Everything's fine. Yeah. And uh, does it get into like the, how eggs are involved in this, in this section? Or is that later? That's later. Okay. Gotcha. I like that. So Lee and Ray have kind of a tense talk and Ray kind of tries to clear the air. He's like, look, we got off on the wrong foot. Can we please start over? And Lee is like, how about this for a peace offering? You guys need cash? Cause I got cash. It's at my house. Yeah. I have just a ton of money in a safe. Another person who just is sitting on an insane amount of money. Yeah. Because we killed our last one. They can't use their debit cards anymore with unlimited money. So now they need right. a safe. I forgot. Yeah. So now they need a safe with unlimited money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they immediately are like, let's go get it. Yep. In the middle of the night, they take off to go get this safe. Find out the GC beat them to it. Yep. They get to the house. It's been ransacked. The door is open. And then we cut away to a really weird scene. I mentioned earlier there was a character who adapts to the whole GC politics thing pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It's Abdullah. Yeah. He is able to butter Leon up so quick and play his game so quick because they get on the plane and the kitchen staff are boarding the 216 and they're trying to find an excuse to distract Leon while they set the plane down to unload the cargo. Mm-hmm. And Abdullah convinces the chef that he's going to win brownie points with Leon if he serves him his eggs Benedict when they hit the ground instead of in the air. Yeah, because Leon does not like eating, uh, what kind of eggs is it? Eggs Benedict. Like, yeah, they don't, he doesn't like eating eggs Benedict with holiday sauce in the air because it gets all over him because it, the, of all the turbulence. So- Abdullah is completely making this up. Yep. <laughs> so we cut back to Leah and Ray. They make it to the house. As they're approaching the door, Leah suddenly freezes and just drops to the ground with a look of terror on her face. Yeah, the reason being is because the judgment from Revelation 9 actually occurs right in that moment, and Leah on the horizon sees these giant horses that are being ridden by um, these riders with, like, lion heads and the breastplates and all that stuff. And Ray just kind of peeks his head out the door, and he's like, what's wrong with you? There, there ain't nobody there. And doesn't see anything. And Leah is terrified. And uh, yeah, and there's like, there's got to be the horsemen of Revelation 9, Leah. Don't worry, they won't hurt us. But when you see these like colossus horses on the horizon, that's kind of uh, not an easy thing to digest. Yeah, it's easy for Ray to say. He hasn't seen them yet. Yeah. Like, he's just like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, they won't hurt us. It's fine. If they're there at all. Calm down, little girl. So... Ending the chapter, Leon finally gets to meet Abdullah, and he's mad because he's like, why did you think that I wanted to eat my meal on the ground instead of in the air? You don't know me. And Abdullah just kind of flips it and reverses it on him. And he's like, well, I figured you didn't want hollandaise sauce all over your tie. 
Leon's just like, do you hear this guy? Oh man, he gets it. All right, yeah. I just wrote in my notes, this guy. <laughs> Leon, all right, if you haven't had a boss like this, you haven't been working long enough because everybody's had this boss. He's the guy who draws too much attention to your jokes, especially if he likes them mm -hmm. and then immediately turns around and steals your jokes. Yeah. And like repeats them. He kind of marches back up to the cook and he's like, yeah, I wouldn't want egg yolk all over my shirt. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Dude. I just made that joke. It's that meme of the guy who said the joke and then the guy who said it again, but louder. Right. So, yeah, Leon's the worst, and he doesn't get any better. All right, last chapter of the episode. We're on chapter eight. Yep. So Leah and Ray are in the garage, climbing up to what I think is like a loft or a deck built inside the garage. Mm -hmm. They've got this big safe up high, so they're having to climb up a ladder. And they specifically say when they start filling this bag with cash, it's too heavy to carry. What's a bag of cash that's too heavy to carry? I just said, okay, let's just ballpark it maybe 100 pounds like mm -hmm. that's kind of a pain it's not too heavy i mean you raise a big guy he can probably get it but like yeah. let's just say 100 pounds i took the liberty of looking up how much a stack of 20s weighs or how many 20s it would take to weigh a pound that's 454 20 bills to weigh a pound mm -hmm. so 100 pounds would put us in the neighborhood of nine hundred thousand dollars. yeah I don't know that there's that many. Yeah. That's a lot of money for one safe in a suburban house. I'm not, I'm not buying it. Yeah. So they get in their little Monopoly money bag. It's got a little dollar sign on the side of it. And they're about to get away and a flashlight beam just hits them in the face. Are you Miss Leia Rose? They just hear out of like, like out of nowhere. And Leah's not like combat trained at this point with dealing with the GC. She's like, uh, e e e yes. <laughs> And Ray, like, snaps into action. He kicks into gear instantly, claiming to be GC Peacekeepers. He's, like, pulling out his phony ID. He's given her a fake name. She left her ID in the truck. And the GC's got him dead to rights. Like, they got their guns on him. Yeah. Ray's doing really well, kind of just playing jazz here. He, he appeals to their greed is the most important thing. He looks, uh, sir, listen, I know we all see all this money here. Uh, the Rose Woman, she was a rebel sympathizer, right? So technically, isn't this all our money now? Wink. <laughs> and they almost buy it. Like, they're so close. Like, this is normally like a buck move yeah. that Ray is pulling, but he just barely gets it. And then one of the guards looks at Leah and then looks at the photo of Leah that they have and goes, Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, Ray just... <laughs> takes a wad of cash and breaks the only light bulb in the garage and basically yells, scatter! <laughs> and they make a run for it. Uh, and then as they're running away, the guards just suddenly disappear. At first, they, they're not sure what happened. Then Leah turns, her eyes go real wide, and there are the horses again, twice the size of any horse that he had ever seen. Uh, and then fire comes out of their mouths. The GC guards that they had first encountered are just wiped out by these things. Yeah, these things are enormous. The riders themselves are 10 feet tall. Tails are made of snakes. They have navy, red, and yellow breastplates and they are completely silent. Yep. Now, the believers can pass through them like a hologram. Non-believers can't even see them. Yeah. As they are trying to get away, some more guards show up. They hear sirens and helicopter blades, like, it's on now. And two more guards come up behind them, and they're like, stop or I'll shoot. 
Can you read what they say next? What do you know about those dead security guards? Nothing, Leia said. Stormforce, what do you think of our army? Stand up, ma'am. They can't see them, Rayford said. Can't see who, the guard said. Come with us. You don't see anything, Rayford said without inflection. <laughs> I, I told you to stand, ma'am, the other shouted as he stepped toward her. Rayford stepped in front of him. Son, let me warn you. If warn me, I could shoot you and never have to answer for it. You're in danger. We didn't kill those good. And then the guard bursts into flames, <laughs> screaming and spinning, his like body lighting up the area like day. And a horse moves past Rayford, silently spins, and just uses its tail to knock out the other guard. And he flies like a ragdoll and crushes his head into a tree. Oh, my God. And so Leah and Ray are running through this neighborhood as not only the guards, but the inhabitants of the homes in this suburb are getting obliterated by these ghost horses. <laughs> Demon ghost horses. And as they get to the car, a Rayford just puts on some sunglasses, metaphorically. He doesn't, just goes, welcome to the Shred Force. <laughs> and they call Buck and just go, tell Zion to go to the window. It's happening! <laughs> yeah, wake everybody up. Go to the window now. <laughs> <laughs> and we finish the chapter with Abdullah and Mac. Just cruising along. We get to see a little bit of their back and forth. They're kind of teasing each other. Abdullah thinks he sees a cavalry army in the distance in front of the plane while they're flying. And Mac kind of makes fun of him. Yeah. And Abdullah's like, I know what I saw. And Mac is still kind of chiding him like, oh, what are you going to pout? And <laughs> poor Abdullah's like, look, I, I don't have a frame of reference for pout. And Mac kind of explains it. And, and he's like, well, then, yes, I'm pout. Because <laughs> you you don't believe that I saw what I saw. And in that moment, he sees it again and he dodges the plane out of the way. And Matt goes face first in the instrument panel, slices his face off. Yeah, blood splatters on the windshield. God, it's awful. Yeah. Like, cause you know, all the pokey little switches and stuff yeah. on an instrument panel, yeah. like it just cuts his face all up. This is like our first little really graphic vignette of the book. And it's just like weirdly uh, timed. They linger on it a little too long. Yeah. And as everything clears and like they're both sitting there with shocked expressions on their faces flying through these ghost hologram demon horses in the sky. There's that little like breathless exchange of I didn't do that to get back at you. And Mac just goes, nope, never going to doubt you again. <laughs> now it is time for you to be pout. <laughs> <laughs> that ends the chapter. And that'll actually end us for this episode. Yeah. So that was part one of Assassins, Assignment, Jerusalem, Target, Antichrist. I can't wait to be done with this book where I don't have to say that anymore. <laughs> this has been I Survived the Rapture. Thanks for coming along through book six with us so far. We'll see you again next week for part two. But until then, I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, buckle your seatbelt when you fly on a plane. <laughs> Bye! Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSaurus Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSaurus.com and check out the IndieSaurus Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can tempt you and lead you astray.